Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, November 1st, 2016, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And this is Healing with Dr. Daniels, Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And today's topic is, I tell you, you cannot make this up. Science or superstition, you decide. What I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to share with you the type of reasoning and logic that your doctor is subjected to nonstop for 90 hours at least a week while in medical school. And it continues in the form of continuing medical education after the doctor enters medical practice. So, put on your thinking caps, even get out some pencil and paper if you have to try and follow this. Maybe a few squares and arrows might help. But it's really quite the mental exercise. And I want you to know, in preparation for tonight's show, I talked to my husband. And as you know, that uh, I'm married. And my husband is a very basic, concrete-thinking redneck, which means that he understands things like uh, hammer, nail, gun, bullet, target, hammer, anvil, metal, things like that. And if he sees it and things can you know, be visual, it's cool. So I had to actually try out this logical reasoning sequence on him. And he got it so I know it's cool. You guys will be able to handle this. Now, do not be swayed by the topic tonight. So we're going to use medical marijuana or marijuana legalization as uh, a subject. But whether marijuana should be legal or not, it's actually not the topic here. The topic here is what is the reasoning process that your doctor or the medical industrial complex follows to make this determination. Okay, so first, we have to talk about medicine, um, science, and why you should subordinate your judgment to that of, well, your doctor or the medical industry. And uh, I was explained to me in medical school, and you may have heard something like this, that medicine is based on science. 
the science beans of somebody that you can trust actually went and took a look and counted and said there's so many of this and there's so many of that and because we have so much of this and not very much of that, then we can tell that this is indeed what happened. And if someone else went and looked, they could do the same count and objectively get the same results. And so all of this is scientific, trustworthy information, information that had we looked ourselves, we could only have come to one conclusion. Okay, so there's a logical thinking process here, and there's objective criteria with unambiguous interpretation, which leads us to a determination which is uh, clear and reliable and, of course, accurate. So this is the premise uh, that I was presented with in medical school. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a real-life, ongoing um, event and the mental processes to bear on this. Okay. So first thing, and this is in your doctor's inbox. This is June 22nd, 2015. And this is medical marijuana laws do not encourage teen use. So the introduction of state laws allowing the use of marijuana for medical purposes does not lead to increase in the use of the drug among adolescents within those states. These are the results of a multi-year nationwide survey. This is 2015. I mean, someone actually did a survey, you know, counted up, measured from year to year, and they found that marijuana use did not increase among teenagers when marijuana was made legal for use in adults. Okay. And the studies were published June 16th in The Lancet in Psychiatry, and these are reassuring findings. Okay. So we've got that piece of information. We're going to accept that as fact. Now, next step. So now uh, we have January 26, 2015. No legal marijuana, pediatricians say. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has drawn a line in the sand. Okay, so now we have a line in the sand. We don't know how wide that line is. We don't know how long that line is. And we really don't quite know exactly where the line is. I mean, is it in California? Is it in Illinois? Texas? Not really clear. Okay, so line in the sand, not exactly a scientific measurement or designation. Okay. Issuing a sober policy, which means I guess they were not intoxicated at the time, reaffirming its opposition to the legalization of marijuana. Now, why would the pediatricians be opposed to the legalization of marijuana? I mean, there's a good reason, so we're going to find out. The American Association of Pediatricians opposes legalization of marijuana because of the potential harm to children and adolescents. Okay, now, we just read the results of the study indicating that use among children and adolescents does not increase as a result of legalizing marijuana. Yet, the American Association of Pediatricians feels that there's harm coming to these children and adolescents. Apparently, even though they're not ingesting marijuana in increasing numbers, the harm is going to increase. All right. All right, so this is, you know, like I said, draw your boxes and your arrows here and sort through this logic. So there's a support studying the effects of recent laws legalizing the use of marijuana. Okay. The statement and accompanying technical report published on January 26th in Pediatrics state that children and adolescents may be harmed 
when adults have easier access to marijuana for recreational or medical purposes. Now, this is an important uh, nuance. Now we're shifting from saying we need to control the behavior of parents. Our pretense for controlling it, of course, is the welfare of the children. But what we really have going on here is pediatricians saying we need to control the control the behavior of parents. Uh, we know marijuana can be very harmful to adolescent health and development. A member of the Committee on Substance Abuse said, making it more available to adults, even if restrictions are in place, will increase the access for teens. Now, we've got this study that says, hey, maybe it's increasing access, but the teens are not going for it. They're not using this substance in higher amount. Yet, the American Academy of Pediatrics saying, hey, we, we believe. Again, we have to use the word believe, right? Belief. Belief, faith, religion. Okay, not exactly an objective nose count here. And so uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics warns that marijuana can affect. In other words, they don't know if it affects. No measurement has been made. No determination. No objective measurable, measurable criteria whatever, are underpinning this statement. So can affect. Memory and concentration interfere with learning in adolescence, making it harder for them to finish high school or pursue a college degree. And again, if you take a look at, uh, you know, our recent titans of industry, whether that would be uh, Apple, Microsoft, or Dell, we can see that there's something to be said for dropping out of college. Uh, As we continue... Um, so state laws, at this time, commercial sale of marijuana has been legalized, and this is old news because there's more states that have said yes, in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and the District of Columbia, and decriminalized in 18 states. And so they go on to the details of uh, the legality of marijuana. The American Academy of Pediatrics position is not without exception. I'll give you the English translation. Their position has exceptions. It acknowledges that marijuana may currently be an option for cannabinoid administration for children with life-limiting or severely debilitating conditions and for whom current therapies are inadequate. So, while it should not be legal, even for medical use, it should be legal for medical use in some children. Okay, so those of you who have been listening very closely here, got your pencil and paper out, you might notice there's a contradiction there. Mm-hmm. In addition to opposing legalization of marijuana, this association also opposes smoking marijuana because of the documented health effects, which it doesn't state, by the way, and urges adults not to use a drug in the presence of children. Okay. So what we have here, then, is a, a position based on absolutely not a shred of fact. They, they didn't mention a single fact in this article, not a single um, quotable number or anything. And we have a study that directly contradicts the premise of this position. All right, does not stop there. So now, just imagine yourself, you're a doctor, and you're trying to figure out, okay, this is a marijuana thing, what should I be telling my patients? And if you're a pediatrician, you realize you should be telling your patients and their parents 
No marijuana should never be legal, not for any use, but some kids it should be legal for. And it's like, that's a little confusing. And what is this based on? Well, uh, I don't know. Okay, so it gets better. This is October 20th, 2016. This is very recent, uh, about a couple of weeks ago. And it says, legalized marijuana boosts high school dropout rates. Okay. Now, you are armed with a little piece of information here, right? You know, in use of marijuana has not increased as a result of the legalization of marijuana. Therefore, if marijuana is causing an increase in dropout rates, it's not because the teenager in question is smoking the marijuana. So, of course, there's this big gap in your understanding, mine too, by the way, and any medical student, and it can create confusion. How does marijuana, when not smoked, not ingested, not in any way used by this teenager, how does that influence him to drop out of high school? Question number one. Number two, the law, just changing a law from saying, yes, marijuana is legal for some adults to no, marijuana is not legal or vice versa, changing it from illegal to legal. How does that influence a teenager who doesn't use marijuana? How does that influence him to drop out of high school? This is interesting. So what's needed, of course, is, well, some numbers here. So let's take a look and see. So specifically, uh, let's go back to the beginning here. Okay, so legalizing medical marijuana may have an adverse effect on educational attainment, new research shows. So it's an adverse effect on educational attainment, okay, whatever that is. Now, those of you out there who have kids um, who are trying to put your kids through college and spend a lot of money on it, you might think that a bachelor's degree is plenty. In fact, if the kid goes much further, it could be family bankruptcy. But let's see what we have here. So a study examines the impact of laws that legalize marijuana on educational attainment shows the states with these laws had an increase in high school dropout rates among 12th graders. In addition, among those who did graduate from high school, fewer went on to attend college or graduate, or graduate from college. Now, first of all, there's a premise here, which is that jumping out of high school is a bad thing. This is one premise. Another premise is that um, college graduation or increasing the percent of people graduating from college is a desirable thing. Now, if we look at this in in states that are where marijuana is legal, it might be that these uh, students who don't use marijuana are finding incredible employment in the industry and possibly um, able to support themselves and maybe a family uh, prior to finishing high school or finishing college, in which case, this is not a bad thing. You know, what we have is basically uh, young individuals, humans we'll call them, assuming the reins and responsibilities of adulthood. Uh, this is just a possibility, just something that came to mind. So let's see what we have. So in October, online, published in a journal called Drug and Alcohol Dependence, 
More than anything, what we have done is providing good, solid evidence that there is a direct link between marijuana policies and education, lead author says. With these policy changes, we need to be mindful about how young people might view marijuana. As it becomes approved for medical indications, are kids going to be viewing it as less risky? So what we're saying then is we don't want this idea of legality to contaminate young people. Uh, young people, by the way, is people age 16 to 24, in case you uh, need that information. But what we're saying then is we can't legalize marijuana, not because it's dangerous, because these kids aren't using it, by the way. So the use of the marijuana is not increasing with, with its legalization. So we can't say that these kids are using it, because apparently they're not, for whatever reason. That's, so what we're saying then is the idea that marijuana is legal is hazardous to certain humans aged 16 to 24. Therefore, we cannot expose them to this idea. Now, for those of you who are younger, you might not recall the book burning, censorship, and destruction of ideas, and even forbidden texts in various cultures. So in other words, when governments try to control people, they say, well, these ideas, we can't allow these ideas. We've got to got to burn these books. We've got to destroy these ideas because they can't get out. And so we have this. We have the medical industry saying we have an idea. And this idea is something that needs to be censored. People cannot be exposed to the idea that marijuana is okay to use because we know these kids are not using it because we looked at study number one, right? So study number one said use of marijuana among teenagers, people are supposedly concerned about, it's not increasing. When you make it legal for adults to smoke for medical reasons or whatever, somehow this is, the teenagers aren't catching up, they're not picking up on this. They're not smoking the marijuana. And so what Dr. Fink is saying is because states with legalized marijuana have a higher student dropout rate at the high school and college level, therefore these laws are bad. Again, it's been considered that maybe when marijuana is legal, there are all these new industries that pop up and these kids are able to find employment without the need of saddling themselves with debt. All right, so what does Dr. Plunk say? So this is not to say that there are not legitimate reasons for medical marijuana. I want you to get a load of this not very clear construction. This is not to say that there are not legitimate reasons for medical marijuana. And also decriminalization. But just because we allow medical marijuana, and if we do decriminalize it, that doesn't mean they are not going to have negative consequences associated with marijuana use. Now, dropping out of high school, dropping out of college is considered to be a negative consequence. It may not be a negative consequence if that individual human is simply earning enough money to responsibly manage all of their adult responsibilities. But we have a, a premise here, and then we haven't we don't have any research numbers here to show whether or not completing high school under these circumstances or completing college under these circumstances is a good thing or a bad thing. We don't know. There's no scientific proof, no one took a look, no noses were counted, we don't know. So it doesn't mean that there are not also negative consequences. Alcohol is legal, and we know there are tons of negative things that can happen to people who abuse alcohol. Okay, stop right there. 
We already had the first study showing there's not an increased use of marijuana. So therefore, the ingestion of marijuana is not a factor in these dropout rates. Okay, cigarettes are illegal to buy, and smoking is one of the worst things you can do for your health. So we need to have a dialogue with our kids about these dangers and pitfalls, he said. Again, we know there's not an increased use among teenagers. And so since we know there's not an increased use among teenagers, this particular argument is actually irrelevant because these kids are not ingesting the drug in increasing amounts. It's just that in states where the drug is legal, students or people are saying, I don't think I need to go to 12th grade. I don't think I need to go to college. Well, if I go to college, let me leave college. Now, I'll tell you, I went to Harvard University, one of arguably the better colleges in the United States, but I will tell you, every year when it came time to go back to school, I asked myself, is there possibly a job I could do right now and earn enough money to take care of myself and not do another year of schooling? Every year I asked myself that question. In fact, at the end of every semester, I asked myself that question. Could I just stop right now, right now, right now, could I stop and take care of myself? And if I've been able to give myself a pretty good yes, uh, it's likely I would not have either A, gone to college, or B, graduated from college. So Dr. Plunk and his team looked at the potential impact of medical marijuana laws by examining the relationship between those laws and educational attainment. Now, even if there is a cause and effect relationship, we don't know that it's negative. But let's proceed. They used data sets from the U.S. Census and the American Community Survey for years 1990 through 2012. Well, that's pretty, you know, 22 years. The database included 5.4 million individuals of high school age. The researchers examined the level of education attained by individuals aged 14 to 18 who were exposed to medical marijuana by virtue of living in states with medical marijuana laws, as well as those who were not exposed. Because exposure meant they were living in states with medical marijuana laws. Not, these people were not necessarily using marijuana. So again, this person is exposed to an idea, the idea that marijuana is legal. And so because they're exposed to this idea, Dr. Plink says, they look at the effects of medical marijuana laws on three educational attainment outcomes. High school diploma after completing 12th grade, beginning college but not completing a degree, obtaining any college degree, after having started college. So they found that exposure to medical marijuana laws associated with a 0.4 percentage point increase in the probability of failing to get a high school diploma or general educational GED certificate completing the 12th grade from 3.99 to 4.39. This is less than a 10% increase. So in other words, uh, you know, this is this is minuscule. This is a sliver of a sliver. So this is 10% of 4%. And so this is a very, very small impact, by the way. Exposure to medical marijuana laws from age 14 to 18 was also linked to 1.84% point increase in the probability of not enrolling in college from 31% to 32%. And a 0.85% point increase in the probability of not getting a college degree. So from 45% to 46%. These are very, uh, you know, minuscule, basically two percentage point changes. So 
if we look at the study and the numbers that they are presenting to us, the percent change is 1% or 2% change. This is affecting fewer than one out of 100 of those who decide not to continue their education. So in other words, if we made, if we implemented what this person was suggesting, which is to make medical marijuana illegal and make all students exist in a state of illegal marijuana, then we could prevent 1% of all college dropouts. That's really a spit in the ocean when you consider that uh, 45% of people who attend college don't graduate. So this is not a substantial uh, high-yield proposition. So the impact of medical marijuana laws was not immediate. So if the policy change occurred when someone was 13 or 14, they did not immediately drop out of high school. Instead, there was a delayed impact. The law did not affect kids until they were in the 12th grade, Dr. Plunk said. So again, what we have here then is saying we cannot allow human beings the freedom of choice. That's really all this is. We cannot allow human beings freedom of choice. And so if we say then that the medical industrial complex can make lifestyle decisions about a whole population, in other words, what 100% of people should do based on influencing the behavior of 1% of those people, then that really gives them the power of a dictator. So if there's a habit that exists in 1% of the population, we want to change that habit then we need to make a law punishable by fines and imprisonment, which is what many marijuana laws are. And we need to have the power of the police state to reinforce these medical edicts. This is sounding not very scientific, if you ask me, just want to say, just just saying. Uh, So college enrollment and college completion with obtaining a degree were also affected by medical marijuana. These results are consistent with a longer-term developmental effect. As our study implies, I mean, it suggests, so it doesn't prove anything or show anything, it's just implication. Legalizing medical marijuana could be associated with an additional 120,000 high school dropouts over a 17-year span. You mean it's going to affect fewer than 10,000 high school students a year? That's a, a spit in the ocean. And so this is a lot of uh, police power to put into something that at best will affect even 10,000 high school students in the United States a year. But medical marijuana cannot be prescribed to children, Dr. Plunk noted. However, it is likely that young people are getting the medical marijuana that is legitimately prescribed for an adult through diversion, he said. Again, we have a study that looked at this and we realized that is not happening. That these students, these teenagers in the United States, for some reason, are willfully deciding um, not to use any more or any less marijuana than they were using uh, before the laws were passed. Okay. Equating legal with safe. And so they go on to say that that marijuana can be safe uh, but not legal. And so we have here then um, actually a very compelling reason, if you look at these numbers, to not do anything at all about uh, marijuana laws. In other words, there's no medical, medically compelling 
position here. So this person has not cited any health benefits. They've mentioned um, the impact on high school dropouts of just being exposed to the laws. And even if you're, well, first of all, we haven't, we haven't established that these particular students that are affected by this are worse off. In other words, it might be that they're starting some pretty uh, robust businesses and they're law-abiding citizens and they're fulfilling their adult responsibilities. So we don't have any information documenting harm at all. All we have is a statistic, which is college completion. And even that statistic is only affected by a fraction of a percent. So then, this is the level of reasoning that's being used for um, doctors as they are being directed and instructed in medical school to take actions. Doesn't stop there. Let's go take a look. Let's kick us up a notch. And this is, as I say, the PS de resistance. That means the, the real big one. And so did PSA testing save Ben Stiller's life? Now, Ben Stiller, for those of you who don't know, because I did not know, is a comedian. And for those of you who don't know, because I did not know, he's actually a pretty good comedian. And so Ben, and so this is, a, again, this is something your doctor's getting in his inbox, October 13, 2016, and this is credible scientific information. And I want you to try and sort out the scientific support for whatever it is this person is saying, number one. And number two, what you as a doctor should do after reading this. So figure this out. So this is written um, by somebody with lots of letters after their name. Believe it or not, I don't even know what they, look, they stand for. MBBS, MRCS. So there you have it. So Ben Stiller, one of the few comedians on this side of the pond who can make me laugh. Okay, so... This guy's a good comedian. He makes people laugh, and so we're going to believe what he says. Said that the PSA testing saved his life. I suspect he was not being funny. Mr. Stiller had a Gleason score, grade 7, localized prostate cancer. Is he right? No, is, is he right that the PSA testing saved his life? Okay, I want you to listen carefully to this answer. The honest answer is if we want a dishonest answer. The honest answer is that we do not know. I'll repeat that. The honest answer is that we do not know. We meaning doctors. We meaning the medical profession. So this guy had a PSA test. Some intervention was done, medical intervention, based on the PSA test. And the medical industrial complex says the honest answer is they do not know if the test or the intervention actually did save Ben Stiller's life. Now, Ben Stiller believes it does, and that's okay. He's entitled to his belief. Everyone's entitled to their belief. What we're looking at is where is the, where is the, the objective scientific certainty that your doctor is basing his conclusions on? And the answer is, honest answer, we don't know. So before I get granular, in other words, before I give you more detail, you is the doctor, so this is addressed to doctors. You guys aren't supposed to have this information, just by the way. We must visit proof, level of proof, and burden of proof. Of course, you should already be getting dizzy now, because now you've got to put your proof into three piles. All right, so you've got your three piles. 
proof, level of proof, and burden of proof. So that means what's proof, how much proof, and who has to produce it. Okay, so it looks, sounds like a court of law here. The statement, there's no proof that Stiller's life was saved by testing for PSA, is correct. There's no proof. Well, just stop. Let's just put on our human being hat here. If there's no proof of something, then how can the something be true? Just saying. Just saying. Okay. But, again, as a medical student, being a barrage with 90 hours of this stuff, let's see what they tell you what's next. But the statement cannot be made without determining on whom the burden of proof lies. Well, wait a minute. You and I being adults, responsible adults, if I make a statement, then the burden of proof is on me to show that it's true. If you make a statement, then the burden of proof is on you to prove that what you said is true. That's like, you know, this is just the way it is. Again, just say it. But, again, you're in medical school, you're a medical student, 90 hours barrage, this is what you get, and that is not the standard that's used. Okay. So, is the burden of proof with those who say the PSA saved his life, or is the burden of proof with those who say the PSA did not save his life? Well, by now, as a competent 24-year-old, just average age of a medical student, with an IQ of average or above average, you're like, well, where's the dispute here? Because it seems to me anybody who makes a statement is responsible for providing proof that that statement is accurate. There is no such thing as a scientific statement that you can say, make, and not have a responsibility to show proof. But here in the article, they're implying there is such a state where no proof is required. So here we have the uh, rollerball. We can't ask for proof without stating what level of proof we will accept. Maybe we won't believe immaculate conception unless we witness it. So wait a minute. Where did immaculate conception come in here? And I come from a family that wasn't religious, right? So we didn't have, like, we didn't read the Bible. So this immaculate conception thing, I had to go ask questions. Okay, what is this immaculate conception? What's going on with this? Are we supposed to be believing it or not believing it? Or is this science? Where does this fit into medicine, immaculate conception? And this kind of talk is medical instruction is littered with this. They just throw out phrases like the Judeo-Christian ethic. So if you're not Jewish or Christian, you haven't read all these different literature things, you know, like, 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 the, like the, you know, Jewish religious document or the Christian religious document, you're like, whoa, 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 which rules are we following here? Give me a list. I went to the dean of the medical school, and I said, excuse me, I hear this Judeo-Christian ethic thing mentioned. Are there some documents I should be reading to understand which ethic we're following? Is this a religious thing? Do we have a religious obligation as doctors? <laughs> Well, you can imagine the dean did not appreciate being anyone trying to pin him down on that one. And so he says, uh, Jennifer, don't worry about it. I said, oh, okay. So we've got, we've got a macro conception uh, here. Okay. You can disprove that Julius Caesar existed if the only proof you will accept is photographic evidence of his existence. Now, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do we as doctors need to prove that Julius Caesar existed or not existed in order to determine if PSAs are helpful and if they did save this individual's life. Okay, so now we've got Julius Caesar involved in here. We've got a macular consumption involved here. 
Okay, in medicine, level of proof is a sliding scale. Now listen up here. You can arbitrarily choose depending on what you want disproven. Another question, another sentence, even bigger bombshell. Observational studies are no proof unless they prove what you want proven. And I'll read that again for you in case you missed it. In medicine, level of proof is a sliding scale, which you can arbitrarily choose depending on what you wish disproven. Observational studies are no proof unless they prove what you want proven. Whoa. Imagine as a medical student, you have to say, excuse me, I have to pretend I didn't hear that so I don't have to drop out because this is not adding up. So um, studies are proof unless they disprove what you don't want disproven. Hmm. So in other words, something is proof unless it disproves something that you want to believe. Here's another one. It's easy to confuse evidence for proof. Well, by this time, I was totally confused. So I did the unthinkable. I resorted to a dictionary. And here we are. Went to a dictionary, online dictionary, and evidence, noun, the available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or position is true or valid. So evidence is the available body of facts indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid. Synonyms, evidence, synonym is proof. So evidence and proof are the same thing. And so here, what he's saying is, it's easy to confuse evidence for proof. Well, I guess it is, because they're the same thing now, isn't it? But again, medicine is filled with statements just like this. Your doctor is bombarded with stuff just like this. And what does this do? Some of you have a, you know, expression, a BS meter, where you listen to something and you're like, uh, that's not true. <laughs> this is a pile of crap. So what this does is it literally bombards your BS meter and desensitizes you to lies. So we've had several things in this already that are just plain lies. Uh, it's easy to confuse evidence for proof. It's a lie that evidence and proof are not the same thing. Well, look in the dictionary, the synonyms. It's a lie. It's a lie that proof is a sliding scale that you can arbitrarily choose depending on what you want to disprove. No. Proof, here, it says so. Dictionary. What is proof? It is available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid. So there's no sliding scale here. You simply have information, and you look at the information. We're looking at an available body of facts. We're not using a sliding, you know, you're not free to use a sliding scale where you say, eh, that, scale, that fact is not convenient. I'm going to ignore it. But we're saying, what he's saying here is, this is the medicine process. Of course this is what you do. Of course this is okay. And you combine this with the class we get saying that we're exempt from any and all legal and criminal acts, and, you know, this is pretty much at it fits together very nicely. Okay, so what you're saying is there's no proof. Okay, so to say there's no proof screening saved this person's life is really saying there's no evidence 
that screening has a net survival benefit. In other words, there's no evidence that if you screen 100,000 people and you check 10 years later that you will have an increasing number of those who remain alive. Okay. And get this piece of slippery reasoning, okay? Hold on to your hats here. The key word is net, which, as you may recall from your tax return, involves subtraction. If the net is zero, it doesn't mean it was zero before the subtraction. Net benefit from screening can be zero if treating prostate cancer found by screening causes the same number of deaths as life saved by screening. Well, just about now, it's time for people to sit down and say, whoa, wait a minute, am I in the business of causing death? And do I get to kill one person for each imaginary life I save? And if I am saving lives, can we point out who those people are that I've saved? I actually had to raise my hand in medical school say, excuse me. If screening kills three people and it saves three people, which three people is it saving? You know what the answer was? I bet you can guess. A professor told me, we don't know. So we don't know who is being saved. We just have to take somebody's word for it that they are being saved. But we do know who's dying. We can count dead bodies. So what does saving a life and screening even mean? This is the author. It should mean making a person live longer than they would have lived if they were not screened. This is difficult to capture. <laughs> yeah, just like my professor in medical school said over 20 years ago, we don't know. Statistically, screening saves lives means fewer deaths from the cancer that is being screened. In the case of PSA screening, fewer deaths from prostate cancer. Now, fewer deaths from the cancer that's being screened, but more deaths from the treatment, which would be chemotherapy. And so this is what's being said. So really, we're not saving any lives. We're just having people killed by the chemotherapy instead of the cancer. So people are still simply, well, dying. And the other way they get around this is they cause, they measure something called disease-specific mortality. So you measure the number of people who die from prostate cancer, not all-cause mortality. If you measure all-cause mortality, then you may not, you don't see a reduction. Why? Because people are dying from the chemotherapy. So if PSA screening hypothetically saves Peter, Tom, and Rajiv, but kills because of complications of surgery, Dick and Emil, the net benefit is one. If it also kills Donald, the, next be- the net benefit is zero. But here is the important point. Even if the net benefit of screening is zero, it still means that Peter, Tom, and Rajiv were saved by screening. I am amazed at this elementary logic, which can be understood by most middle schoolers, eludes many doctors. In other words, many doctors are becoming a little bit shy about this high murder rate. And what this editorial is trying to say to doctors is don't worry. Of course you're killing people, and that's okay, because you're saving at least as many as you kill. I felt a little uneasy about that in medical school. I I really said, wait a minute. Can't we find some therapies where we're not killing people? This is not exactly why I went to medical school. I didn't go to medical school to kill people. So here they're, they're, they're chastising a doctor and making humili- humiliating them and belittling them by saying that if you think it's wrong to kill a few people with your therapy, then 
you're not as bright as a middle schooler. All right. The statement, there's no proof that this person's life was not saved by PSA, is also correct. Some get judgmental and say, there is no proof that PSA saved this person's life than a magical sky pixie saves his life. This cute yet sophomore reasoning misses a point, which is that a PSA test leading to the discovery of a localized prostate cancer of intermediate grade could possibly, plausibly save Stiller's life. Again, so now, this is a slippery slope. So instead of basing our medical decisions on statistics, numbers, evidence, and proof, we're now talking about plausibility. Plausible. It could have happened. Maybe it happened. I think it happened. Sounds good. What's plausible is down to expertise and judgment and such non-judgmentalism that holds PSA testing in the same evidentiary bracket as a magical sky pixie, that is, egalitarian with expertise, is not objective but idiotic. So because we have no evidence that the PSA test saved this person's life, and we have no evidence that it did not save his life, then making one assessment or another is an act of expertise, not an act of, project, of pronouncing magic as in pixie dust. Obviously, of course, it is arbitrary and capricious, as in magical sky pixie dust, because, again, the very fundamental foundation of medicine as being scientific is being ignored here. So we're saying we have an action, PSA screening, for which there is no evidence of benefit, and there is no evidence of no benefit. In other words, there's no evidence. So what business does a doctor have to engage in activity with no evidence or proof of benefit? Again, this is my editorializing. In this document, this guy has no problem with this. So let's see what he says. It is plausible, therefore, and possible that PSA testing saves this person's life. But is it probable? That is the crux of the disagreement and depends more on the prognosis of the tumor than the net survival benefit of screening. And so this is really just, uh, your head should be spinning now. Let's consider the latter, not the former. The net survival benefit of PSA screening is contentious. In other words, no one agrees. The Goldberg trial showed that screening for prostate cancer had a measurable treatment effect and that 293 people had to be invited for screening to prevent one death from prostate cancer. Remember, everyone dies of something. What they mean is to postpone one death by five years. That's impressive. For comparison, the number needed to screen to reduce death from lung cancer in heavy smokers is 320. And this is why it's not recommended that screening take place at any rate. The prostate, lung, colorectal, and ovarian trial failed to show that PSA screening saved lives. Okay, so we've got this. Finally, we have a study that showed screening did not save lives. But the trial was contaminated because 90% of the group control group had had a PSA test in the past. This trial compared PSA testing with PSA testing and found, unsurprisingly, that the group that received PSA testing didn't live longer than the group that received PSA testing. Now, again, this is a bit specious. What the trial did was they, went, they screened these people going forward. They continued the screening. 
So many had been screened in the past, but when they continued the screening moving forward, there was no benefit. Okay. Now, this is, um, this gets even worse. So he says, it gets even more complicated. Urologists are getting better at sparing, okay, so screening is beyond net survival benefits. PSA screening can lead to harm from surgery or radiation therapy to the prostate. The value of a harm is subjective and personal. While no man I know will ask Santa Claus for impotence for Christmas, some men would rather die um, than be impotent. Others might prefer to live and be impotent. So there's no one size fits all. Screening is a matter, is the mother of all, one size fits all. So you might be your neighbor's keeper, but you don't own your neighbor's values. And by now, as a 24-year-old sitting in medical school class, and you're in hour number uh, 88, you're getting a headache. It's even more complicated. Urologists are getting better at sparing nerves during prostate surgery. So the harms have been reduced. And so the only objection to screening is philosophical. In other words, what you view the role of medicine in society to be. Wait a minute. And if we don't have any objective evidence of benefit, then, and we're here to benefit the patient, then why would we do such a thing? So here's what he explains. Let's give you insight into medical ethics. For example... I would not be supporting screening for prostate or PSA if I was the healthcare czar. But I wouldn't pretend that my objections are empirical because it's impossible to make a rational empirical objection to any one screening test without specifying the precise treatment benefit and its uncertainty needed before approval. So in other words, if he was a healthcare czar, he would oppose screening PSA. But if he was a doctor profiting from the subsequent surgeries generated by the PSA test, he would be in favor of it. So nowhere do we have a patient benefit as a consideration for decision-making. And as I approached my third year in medical school, I noticed this, and then I found this really troubling. Okay. So screening is an individual choice and has become a societal prerogative. This is bound to because cognitive dissonance. For some have adopted a middle ground and said that screening should be down to shared decision-making. In other words, uh, whatever, uh, whatever you want. And so sure, throw some numbers to help uh, patients make an informed choice, but I suspect patients won't care too much about probabilities. You're the doctor, not them. And the patients come to you for your opinion, not theirs. How do you like that? Which gets me back to this comedian. Some say he's spreading misinformation by advocating PSA screening. I'd argue that it's not possible to spread misinformation about screening because we don't have a clue. Whoa. What are doctors doing administering a test about which they don't have a clue? And so... This is the bottom line. And this is the paradigm in which your doctor is educated. A bunch of opinions thrown back and forth, masquerading, describing it described as facts, 
and nobody has a clue. And so I emerged from medical school after four years. I said, holy cow, now what? And so because you're filled with information like this, no underpinning of objective facts, you're left with a game of Simon Says, a game where your doctor literally is told, do this, do that, and uh, he just does this and does that. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is you're about as qualified as your doctor to make any uh, particular decision in these cases. So we have about six minutes left. I'd like to uh, remind people to please go visit vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida and get your updated report 2.0 version of the document that has circled the globe time and time again. It's responsible for miraculous cures. I have, it has been updated. We now have an updated document that is easier and even more simple to follow. Okay. <laughs> so we've got lots of comments in the chat room. Let's see what we got. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, I tried using bentonite clay for my teeth, and they still have cavities. I don't think the cavities are severe since they've never hurt. But I can definitely see the blackness, brownness, and the teeth are weak, like they have sharp edges that feel semi-chip. What can I do? You can eat, actually, ham hocks and pig's feet, believe it or not, and that will firm up those teeth. Um, but I would say if your cavities are not painful, uh, don't bother them because... Dental care is painful. Okay, Dr. Daniels, the amount of fruit has changed on your new Cantita Cleaner version. That's true. Will it still be as effective to stay on the older version? No. Also, is the use of olive oil okay to use, and for how many days should you be expecting three movements a day before doing something? Hmm. Um, You know, back in the old days, I would have people do three bad movements a day for a full month before starting turpentine because I did not want any cleansing reaction. I wanted everyone to have a smooth experience, and that's exactly what they had. So I know a lot of people on the Internet, they're really anxious, they want to have a quicker you know, ramp-up time. Uh, what I can say is you really do have to go for the three bad moves a day, drink the water, do the first five steps, and then uh, try the turpentine. So what I would say is if you don't have the patience to do it for a month, then you might want to start with a lower turpentine dose. Okay. Hi, Dr. Downs. I'm trying to remove my toxic breast implants that are making me sick. Well, turpentine helps a lot. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, this doctor, I'm talking to a doctor who offers an expensive regime of supplements to detox the silicon after the darn things are out. Would you suggest any other detox? Could super popping, super pooping, oh, super pooping, which I've achieved, do the job? 
you know of any good surgeons in Panama who could take these things out with the capsule and understand how to do a detox. We have lots of plastic surgeons in Panama, although they do specialize in putting them in, not taking them out. Um, so I don't, I can't give you any guidance on who I would recommend to take breasts out in Panama. My, uh, of course, position is I kind of stay away from that stuff. But the question is, let's say you do get them out, and what about detox? Um, you know, if you're on a budget, you can just do a mixture of clay and charcoal and continue super pooping. That's what I would do. Because basically all the silicon does is dissolve into the blood and go through the liver and then out into the toilet. So that's pretty much the root of egress. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, can turpentine be helpful for people with kidney issues? If you refer to the Merck manual, the um, 1899 edition, uh, turpentine is listed as the cure for kidney issues. Okay. And we only have 30 seconds left. Hope you have enjoyed the show. And... Uh, Remember, this is the logic your doctor is being subjected to and bombarded with, which literally leads him to paralyze and suspend his judgment. Again, the moral of the story is, your judgment is every bit as good as his. All right, as always, think happens, and we'll see you next Tuesday.